Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy. And we, uh, Lord, just want to hear from you today. So please have your way with us. Please guide us and lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before we get going uh, into the text here this morning, and I, I want to make a couple of other announcements. First of all, uh, there's some folks that are kind of liquidating their home library. The books are uh, out there, so anybody sees some books out there they want, uh, take them. Uh, if you see some eggs out there you want, take them, and um, uh, that's, uh, that's that. I want to also, um, if you're watching online, I want to be as sensitive as I can, but I also want to address something that I think maybe we don't hear very often, and, and that is this. I'm super sensitive about uh, everybody's um, uh, response to the virus and different way, and I want to be accommodating to everybody, but I notice there's a little bit of a phenomenon that I want to sort of call out if I can, and it's highlighted in a patient that I saw in my office this week. This patient was um, frankly depressed because of isolation, and we all know that's a real thing. And, uh, and I would probably go so far as to say there's some pretty good data that says isolation is not only bad for our emotional health, but also our physical health. Uh, if you do some, um, you get to my age, you start reading about longevity, right? Uh, and so I'm reading about longevity, I wanna kinda make it there. Um, but uh, one of the key factors in longevity is uh, social engagement, believe it or not. And it dramatically affects not only our mental health, but our physical health. Anyway, this, this patient I was talking to um, says, yeah, I'm just kind of discouraged and depressed. Um, you know, I don't have any, really don't do anything. You know, my neighbors, she lives downtown. My neighbors come, they walk down to the end of the sidewalk and, and you know, out the sidewalk and I stand on the porch. We both keep our masks on and they keep their masks on and we kind of wave at each other. And I just really feel like I need fellowship. I mean, shouldn't use Christian term, but we can use our Christian dictionary here. We say the word fellowship, right? And I said, well, I knew this person had some risk factors. I said, well, have you been vaccinated? She's like, yeah. I said, well, have they been vaccinated? I said, well, yeah. I said, let me tell you what even the CDC would say. Well, they might not say it quite this way, but let me tell you how I would say, my interpretation of what the CDC would say, take your masks off, give each other a big hug, and invite them in for coffee. Right? And so uh, you've been vaccinated. They've been vaccinated. I would ask the question, why did you get a vaccine? If you can't do that, right? And so let me just, uh, and again, I, I want to be super sensitive. I know that it, there's lots of opinions on this, and I want to be as accommodating as I can to, to all of those. But let me just say what maybe is not verbalized very much in our day and age as I, our day and age as I see it. I think fellowship is critical to our spiritual health, our emotional health, and our physical health. It's critical. Somehow or other, we've got to uh, engage some fellowship. And so I tell you that if you're watching online and, um, and you're concerned and that's why you're watching online, I respect that. But let me encourage you, at some point, there's value in fellowship. I don't say that as a, as a pastor trying to fill the pews, right? Uh, I say that as a guy who's concerned about the emotional and physical and spiritual health of our community. And so, um, anyway, that's all that. 
Is that fair? Okay. If you're watching online and you say, no, that's not fair, I can't tell. So that's that. Um, another thing I want to point out, you know, and this is a little bit awkward because I don't want to, you know, I hate to, to do this, but I, I just want to encourage everybody if you're watching or if you're, if you're here about Wednesday nights. If you're not able to be here on Wednesday nights, let me encourage you to be here on Wednesday nights. Um, I am super, uh, it's awkward because you don't want to like puff up your son, right? I don't need a puffed up son in my home, right? But um, anyway, uh, but um, Wednesday nights are a blessing and I'm very much enjoying, uh, you know, I love to just come and sit and, and, and learn and glean on Wednesday nights. Uh, but I want to highlight something here just briefly if I can. Raise if you were here or if you watched online uh, Nate talk on Wednesday night. Okay, so a fair number of uh, victims here. So if I were to read this verse out of 2 Samuel, and I read this verse, then the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Anybody know what verse that is? 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. All right, I'm just saying, right? So Nate called me out on, on Wednesday. He said that would be like a dad thing that made you like go through the numerical exercise of 24, 24, and 4 is twice of 2. But I just want to highlight the fact that everybody did in fact know that. So with that, let's get into Isaiah chapter 47. There might be some kind of numerical trick we can pull uh, uh, that'll enhance the memorization today. So there you go. Isaiah chapter 47, 48, and 49, we're going to talk about 47 gives us some lessons from, uh, if you will, from, the, from Babylon. 48 gives us some lesson from sort of the captives in Babylon, and 49 moves into a discussion about the Messiah. And uh, as we kind of navigate through that, at the, toward the end of, of 49, uh, we'll kind of read in chunks. So if, you, if, I'm, if you're watching the clock and you're getting a little nervous as we get into 49, 49 will move quicker uh, as we kind of go through that. But we need to know the historical context as a matter of review uh, for this most commentators say this was written by Isaiah primarily, well, to give us all a bit of prophecy, but, but sort of the near prophetic fulfillment was this was written to encourage the captives in Babylon. Now, you may recall, after the reign of King Solomon was his son Rehoboam, who reigned over all of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And during uh, his reign, that kingdom was split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was, was later carried off captive by the Assyrians because of their sin. And the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, was, um, they lasted a little while longer because there was some uh, uh, reprieves in their sin where they followed the Lord. Um, but they were ultimately carried off captive to Babylon. This is important to, to remember. The nation of Judah was carried off captive to Babylon as a consequence of their sin. It was God disciplining the nation of Judah. He never completely destroyed them, okay, because God doesn't destroy his children. God doesn't 
cast off his children, but God does discipline his children. And that's the context we need to keep in mind for today. Well, anyway, they were carried off to captive to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. And then by God's grace, the Medes and Persians, by, under the leadership of King Cyrus, they took over the Babylonians and sort of inherited the Babylonian uh, captives from Judah. And so King Cyrus, as a, really an act of God's grace, uh, allowed the, the Jewish people to come back to Judah and Jerusalem, rebuild their temple, reestablish their temple worship, and all of that. But their time in Babylon was for a time of discipline, okay? A time to sort of, for the Lord to get their attention. And during that time, if you've ever been disciplined as a, you know, maybe by an earthly parent or by God, uh, during that time, uh, you may need some encouragement that God's not forgot you, that God is who he says he is, and all of those sorts of things. So that's sort of the context that we're talking about. Is that fair? Yes. Amen. Good. All right. Very good. Chapter 47, come down, and now chapter 47 again talks a little bit more about Babylon itself. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Now, just for reference, Chaldeans is a, uh, basically a synonym of Babylonians, if you think of their culture was the Chaldean culture. So we start out with a picture of Babylon as being a young woman, a young woman who was once tender and delicate. And, and you know, though she was, um, as a nation, was very powerful, was very um, uh, prosperous in many ways, uh, the prophecy speaks that uh, that will uh, come to an end. And she's now pictured as humbled and disgraced. Verse 2, take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off your skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame shall, will be seen. I'll take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. And so the woman is now vulnerable. She's desperate, naked. She's ashamed. Uh, again, a picture of Babylon. And God says that, she, that he will take vengeance on Babylon. And so it's interesting that the Babylonians were used as an instrument of God's discipline, but that was all. It wasn't that they were so awesome or that they were so holy. As a matter of fact, they weren't. As a matter of fact, they were sort of the, the, the pinnacle culturally of pagan idol worship. And many commentators would say it's kind of like, you know, the, the Jewish people, God's people there in Judah, they were, you know, fallen into pagan idol worship. And God said, okay, you want pagan idol worship? I'll show you pagan idol worship and, and how empty it is. And so part of the discipline there in Babylon was for them to see how empty and, and futile it is to truly worship idols. And uh, that was part of what God was, was accomplished. But it wasn't because Babylon was so great because Babylon was so much stronger than, than Judah. It was because God was, was using them. And so uh, they thought it was because they were so awesome and, and they became prideful because of it. And uh, that was a part of their downfall. Verse four, as for our redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Now, so again, we've talked about this. He's our redeemer. He was the redeemer of the nation of Judah and he's our redeemer today. He's also the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, you know, that word hosts really means the angelic world, 
right? And so, you know, we are engaged in spiritual warfare all the time. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that and elsewhere. We're, all, we're off, we're, you know, there's, there's spiritual warfare going on all the time. If, it's almost like if we could see the angelic world, we'd say, whoa, there's a whole other dimension, right? But God is the Lord of hosts. And so God is not only the Lord of, you know, earthly history of our lives, of, of our situations, of our relationships, of, of all of that. God is also the Lord of hosts, and we can take tremendous comfort in that. He goes on, he says, sit in silence and go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Again, the Babylonians. For you shall no longer be called the lady of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, I, my people, the Jews. I've profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You show them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke very heavy. And so basically God is calling out the Babylonians. You know, I use them as an instrument of discipline. I used you as an instrument of discipline, but it wasn't because you were so awesome. It's because I was using you as an instrument of discipline. Now I thought about a word picture. You guys like my cheesy word pictures? Very good. All you online that said no? Can't hear you. So, um, so I like my cheesy word pictures, and every once in a while, it needs to be a visual. Is that okay? You okay with me now? All right. So visual that I got to move this thing out of, out of the way. This is going to be really good. I really, I've been thinking about this all morning, just busting with excitement. If you're listening on audio, this very thing ought to make you ask your grandkids to set you up on Facebook. So, uh, Titus Malachi, can you come up here? Everybody, Titus and Malachi Murphy, right, 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 younger than me, and um, you know, we've had a thing in our, in our home lately, we've been playing basketball in the barn, okay, it's a, it's a thing at the Murphy house, and so we've been playing basketball in the barn, and so, uh, you know, well, I just have to say it, they always have to double team me, so that's just what that is, so Malachi, you come over here. Okay, and I've got this awesome move that I wanted to demonstrate. If I, I wish I had a ball, but I don't, but that's probably okay. I've got this awesome move whereby you guys guard me, okay? It's an amazing move. You ought to see when these guys are guarding me, it's an amazing move. I take my 58-year-old self, and I kind of dribble backwards, and we're kind of going to the hoop right here, right? And I take my 58-year-old self, and then I stop dribbling. I pivot because I can move one. We've been watching March Madness, too. And, and, and I can do this, and then I go like this, and I shoot a basket, right, from about two feet away. And sometimes it goes in, right? All right, you guys can have a seat. Everybody give it up for Titus Malachi, right? Now, let me just say, here's what I'm tempted to do, right? I do that move. With my 58, did you guys all see it or was I moving too fast for you? <laughs> so, uh, back up, get myself in position, pivot, shoot, score. And I say, that was an awesome drive to the hoop. <laughs> right? Now, was that an awesome drive to the hoop or did it just so happen that the defenders were younger and shorter than me? Was it awesome offense that led to that basket? Was it an amazing move? Yes. Well, yes. 
I appreciate that, but you're ruining my story. Um, so it was not an amazing offensive feat of athleticism. Fair enough? Yeah. Right? And so sometimes we go through our Christian life like that. It's what the Babylonians, let me just say, first of all, it's what the Babylonians did. Man, we thumped the Jews, right? Because we were so awesome. No, you thumped the Jews because God was dealing with them. They had horrible defense. It wasn't that your offense was so amazing. They had horrible defense. And I would extrapolate that to our Christian lives. Don't we often do this or at least are tempted to do this? You know, maybe God will bless us in a certain way. And we say, I was awesome, right? Or maybe God is dealing with our defender, whoever it is. And we think that was an amazing move of offensive athleticism, right? Let me just say, be careful. Be very, very careful about that. So it happened to the Babylonians. I think it's a lesson for us that we can't think that we have fantastic offense if God is sort of immobilizing the defense, right? There's two ways to score. Either you got great offense or they got poor defense. Not that you guys were poor defenders. I mean, you ought to see these guys on offense. That's a whole other story, right? But uh, that's the situation with the Babylonians. And you said, verse 7, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So, you know, they thought they'd be a lady forever. They thought they'd be successful forever. They thought they were invincible. They thought they would be secure. Does that ever happen to us today? We might think we're, we're secure says, but they did not remember the latter end of them. Be careful. Never uh, neglect the end result of whatever it is we're doing. Never neglect the end result of whatever it is we're doing. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, we're on one of two roads. He says, enter by the narrow road, the narrow gate, and the narrow road that leads to what? Life. Don't go down the broad road that leads to destruction. Jesus described two roads. He, by the way, didn't describe a third road, right? You've heard me say before, man, sometimes in my life, I wish there were a middle road, right? One where I can kind of live for the Lord, but kind of, you know, get to the destination that I want to be, but kind of uh, live for myself and, you know, kind of like get all the blessings of the Lord, but kind of, you know, as little discipline as I want to undergo. And... Jesus, on the other hand, said there was a narrow road, and it leads to life. There's a broad road, it leads to destruction. We would do well to know, to ask ourselves uh, very often, what's the destination? What's the end point of the road I'm on right now? Because none of us are ever standing still in life. We're always on a road. We're always in movement. We're always going a direction, right? We're never stationary. We're always going toward a destination. And our destination needs to be uh, the end of the narrow road that leads to life. He said, these guys, the Babylonians, they didn't remember the latter end of them, didn't remember the, the end point of where they were going. We need to not neglect to be aware of the end point of where we're headed. There's so many times in life that somebody's going, it's like, they're, you know, it's like they're going 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall. Well, if you drive 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall and your brakes don't work, 
bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. And so often we go through life, like our spiritual, I mean, we wouldn't do that in a car, right? But we sometimes do it in our spiritual life. We think, I'm going to go 100 miles an hour toward that brick wall with no brakes because I'm not going to have any consequence. I'm going to be secure forever. Well, guess what? God is still God. And you can't go 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall without some consequence. That's just a reality. And so the Babylonians didn't get that. Um, in many cases, the Jewish people didn't get that. And sometimes uh, we don't get that. But we need to get it uh, because God gives us this warning. He says, verse 8, Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. What are they doing? They're going toward that brick wall. And they're saying, hey, I'm given to pleasures right? That's sort of the 100 miles an hour, right? Hey, I just want to have fun. I just want to do my thing. I just got to have some me time. I got to take care of me. Or you who dwell securely, right? I'll never hit that brick wall. I'm secure, right? God would say, when you say that, beware that God says, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Don't, we shouldn't say that. God's the only one that can say that. So sometimes we put ourselves in the place of God. Here he says, if you are given to pleasures, if you dwell securely, then you're going to be tempted to say, hey, I am, and there's no one else besides me. You don't realize that God is the only one that can say that. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for your great abundance for the great abundance of your enchantments. So tragedy can come. Tragedy can come suddenly. Sometimes tragedy comes because tragedy comes, to be fair. But sometimes tragedy comes as a result of our sin, as a result of our uh, placing our trust in ourselves. Verse 10, for you have trusted, notice that word, you have trusted in your wickedness. You who have said, no one sees me, your wisdom and your knowledge have warped me. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you, and you will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. So basically, God uh, reiterates, if you will, here in verses 10 and 11, reiterates the same thing he said in verse 8 and 9. And what he says here is, you've trusted in your wickedness. You've trusted in your security your false security. You trusted in your, in your idea that he says, I, that you say, I am, and there is no one else besides me. You are your own God, right? I am to the Jewish audience, that word, I am, what does that mean? That means I am God. Moses, when Moses was in the desert, you may recall, um, uh, talking to the burning bush, to God in the burning bush, God says, hey, I want you to go back and, and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, who should I tell him sent me? How will I, with what authority do I have to go back and say that? He says, you tell him, I am sent you. I am the name of God, right? And so what are these people doing uh, in Babylon? And what do we sometimes do if we're not careful? We say, I am. I'm the God of my life. I am. And there is no one else besides me. We can't say that. We better not. We better not. And here he repeats that in verse uh, 8 and in verse 10 so we, get, so we can get the point. Uh, 
He says, verse 12, stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You're wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you. From what shall come upon you? Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. So oftentimes when we put our trust in something other than God, when we put our trust in ourselves, God does allow us to see how that's going to work out. Because God wants us to know, not because he wants to spank us or because he wants to harm us, but because he loves us. Because he loves us, he sometimes will let us see, you know what, that self-worship that you're doing, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't pay off. It doesn't work. And so the warning from chapter 7 is, be careful about thinking we're secure in our own selves. Be careful about trusting in our own abilities, in our own selves, in our own strength, in our own resources. Be careful about that. Because sometimes it may be even as Christians, because as Christians, you know, the reality is God does bless Christians, right? God loves to bless his children. And so sometimes God will let us score the basket, if you will. And next thing you know, we think it's because we're awesome. Maybe it's because God just blessed us. So be careful about that. That's sort of the warning, if you will, from the Babylonians in that day. He goes on, chapter 48, he moves into really talking about the Jewish people. And now he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So God's now turning his attention from the Babylonians to the Jewish people, the Jewish captives. And uh, he says, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by my name Israel. Again, Israel means governed by God. God changed the name of Jacob, the person Jacob, to Israel because Jacob meant, you know, heel catcher, conniver, manipulator, schemer. Israel means governed by God, and God changed Jacob's name uh, to, to Israel, and he does that to the nation of Jacob, or Israel, if you will. And so um, he's, he's calling these people out who have this sort of religious uh, ideology. You know, hey, we're, we're Jewish people. You know, we're descended from Abraham. We're, we're religious. We offer sacrifices. You know, we adhere to the Sabbath. Uh, you know, we circumcise our male babies. We do all those things. And, uh, you know, God would say, you make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. He's calling out empty religion. He's calling out empty religion. And so just like we have the warnings of the Babylonians, don't get prideful. There's also a warning to the nation of, of Judah here. Don't fall for empty religion. Don't, don't go through the motions. God is not interested in establishing some sort of religious system that we can just be religious puppets. God wants intimate fellowship with his children. Isn't there a big difference? Yes. There's an eternal difference, frankly. Yes. 
There's an eternal difference between empty religion, going through the motions, doing the Christian thing, listening to Christian music, doing your Christian, whatever your Christian thing is, right? There's a difference between that and having fellowship with God. Personal, intimate fellowship with God. That's completely different than the Christian thing. Now, if we have personal, intimate fellowship with God, will we probably do the Christian thing? Yeah, probably. Right? Will we probably listen to Christian music? Yeah. Does that mean you're evil if you don't listen to secular music? Not at all. Not at all. It means that there's some things in our life that as God continues to mold us and shape us, and he does it, all, he does it beautifully in each one of us, individually, in his own way, as only he can do. But as he does that, yes, he kind of changes the way we think, the, the, the things we desire. I mean, honestly, when I, I remember back in the day when I wasn't walking with the Lord, the things I thought were cool then, the things I thought were important then, the things I thought were fun then, I could care less about now, right? I hope we can all say that. But he says, be careful about making mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. I would ask us today, does the fact that I'm a Christian, ask yourselves this, please. Does the fact that I'm a Christian really impact me at the core? And only you can answer that question for yourself. Does the fact that I'm a Christian really impact me at the core of my very being? And if we find ourselves saying, well, I go to church. Well, I sing Christian songs. That's not what I said. Does it impact you at the core of who you are? Because that's where God wants to get at us. That's where God wants to have fellowship, at the core of who we are. Second Timothy chapter, two, chapter 3, verse 5, speaks of people who live for themselves, but then he says, quote, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. There's a whole group of people. I want to read the whole thing. I don't want to butcher it. There's a whole group of people that Timothy says uh, will, will be here. He says, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come, and I believe we're in the last days. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you want to be around that person? And look what it says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. How in the world can someone who is a lover of self, lover of money, boaster, proud, blasphemer, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How can that person have any form of godliness or religion? 
It's going to happen, he says. And do we know that it happens? Yes, we do. Here's what Timothy says. And from such people, turn away. From such people, turn away. God calls out here, back in Isaiah 48, God calls out empty religion. God calls out empty religion. If we're, if we're honestly reading the Scripture, we would call out empty religion in our own lives. And so uh, it's something that we need to be very, very aware of. He goes on, verse 3, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and ca- I caused them to hear it. So he said, I've, been, I've, I've declared my word from the very beginning. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. So the things I said were going to happen have happened. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze, even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. Now, we won't go back in the interest of time. We won't go back to all the details, but you can go back to the Old Testament law. Uh, Back, I believe, in Deuteronomy, where God says, all right, Jewish people, when you get settled in your land and you come out of, you know, he's, when you get settled in your land and you're established as a nation and a culture and a, and, a, and a people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when you're established, if you start worshiping false idols, this is what's going to happen to you. All the way back in the Old Testament law. And it's exactly what we see played out in the course of history. Fast forward a few years, uh, Solomon becomes uh, king, and he builds the temple. And many of you may recall, he has this great prayer of dedication and, and at the time of the, the establishment of the temple. And God answers with this great prophetic thing, and, and this Solomon's prayer, and God's answer. And basically, the whole scripture says, now, if we fall away, which Solomon later led the falling away, If we fall away, this is what's going to happen. It's exactly how it played out, right? And so what's God saying here uh, through the mouth of Isaiah? I, I, I said I was going to do these things, and I did them. Because I want you to know that you cannot say, my idol has done anything, my idol, my carved image, my molded image. You need to know that that doesn't work. And you need to know it, not because I hate you or I hate your idols, but because I want deeper fellowship than what you can get from some stupid, dumb idol. He wants that for us today. He wants fellowship that we cannot get by any other means than a wholehearted surrender to Him. We can't get it any other way. Many of us have tried, right? We go through the room. Well, I tried it this way. I didn't work. You know, that'd be a fun exercise, wouldn't it? Be a little too transparent, right? So don't get nervous. But we could all go through the room and talk about all the things we've tried to find some kind of fulfillment. It'd sound like the book of Ecclesiastes, wouldn't it? Right? Who had all the options to do all that stuff? Solomon, right? Why does God give us the example of Solomon? One of the examples, one of the reasons God gives us the example of Solomon, the wisest guy in the world, the richest guy in the world, the, the guy with all the access to all of the man-made satisfaction in life, so he can write a biography and say, that was all a big waste of time. Yeah. Right? And we can have the privilege of that education without having to go through the experience of it. God doesn't like empty religion. 
God doesn't like us to think that there's any way to find satisfaction in this life than by Him. And so God, He says, you know what? If you worship idols, there's going to be, there's going to be some, some discipline. There's going to be some chastisement because I want you to know that worshiping idols is futile. And so I don't want you to say, my idol has done this. Verse 6, he goes on, you have heard, you've heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I've made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, as before this, and before this day you've not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. And so here, you know, he's continuing to reveal himself through his word. He says, you know, uh, you know, I tried to tell you, but I knew you wouldn't listen. Um, surely from long ago your ear was not opened, and so I had to, I had to basically teach you by experience, Right? What does God, by the way, say repeatedly over and over again uh, to the churches in Revelation? He who has what? Ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. That's what he'd say to us today. He who has ears to hear, right? We all have ears physically. He wants us to have ears spiritually. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the churches, right? But but the Jewish people during this, this time when they're trying to dabble with all this idolatry. They had physical ears, but they had no spiritual ears. They were blinded and they were, they were uh, deaf. For my name's sake, verse 9, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain from, strain it from you so that I do not cut you off. So see this? God doesn't, you know, unlike what Babylon tried to do, Babylon was an instrument of God and they wanted to overdo it. They wanted to torture the Jewish people, Right? God, when God disciplines His people, and when He disciplines us, He knows not to take it too far. He knows He's got no desire to cut us off. He just wants to teach us, to refine us. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Sometimes it's important to realize that as Christians, God allows us to go through a refining process, right? Now, I'm not a metalsmith, right? But is there any metalsmiths in the room? Good, I can act like I know what I'm talking about and none of you can correct me, right? So if I were a metalsmith, right, I'd have to heat up the metal, right? How hot? Way. Thank you, way. That was, that's the word I was looking for. You'd have to heat it up way hot. And then what would happen to the metal? It gets what? Soft, liquid, come on, adjectives, purified, right? The metal gets purified through the, through the fire. And so sometimes that happens in our own lives. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's a great, great New Testament corollary on this purification. 1, Timothy, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow, air, fellow workers... You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. Yes, I'm sorry. I, 
I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as so as through fire. Right? So do you see this? So we go through this fire, through this refining process. So sometimes the way it works is what I do in my life and, and all of that gets disciplined by the Lord. Sometimes it's the discipline of, of a refining fire. And what often happens is those things that were sort of, uh, you know, the wood in my life, right? Let's say I got a little bit of gold and a little bit of wood. What happens when they all go through the fire? The wood gets burned up. The, the gold remains, yeah. Right? What's God doing in our lives over the course of time as we follow him, as we surrender to him, as we have fellowship with him that's empty and not based, or that's, that's, that's intimate and not based on empty religion? What does he do in our lives? He refines us. He burns off the wood, the hay, the stubble, and he leaves the gold, the silver, right? And so sometimes, and I, I tell us this, I encourage us in this, because sometimes when we face the fire of purification, what's our first reaction? Get me out of this thing. Get me out of this fire. I don't like fire. I like comfort, right? I like soft pillows. I like rest. I like ease. I like chocolate, right? I don't like fire. But sometimes the fire is necessary for God to do what he needs to do in our lives as a means ultimately toward accomplishing that fellowship that he wants with us. And so, again, he does that for his namesake. For my namesake, I will defer my anger. And then he goes on, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. I've allowed you to go through affliction to test you. And it's important that we receive that. I mean, we don't need to go jumping into every fire we can find, right? But when God allows us to go through the fire of purification, it's okay to receive it. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. How should you, for how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my glory to another. Now, we have to understand this. As a part of our fellowship with God, we have to understand that He deserves all the glory in the world. He deserves all the glory in the world. He deserves all the glory in our lives. He deserves all the glory that, that uh, we can come up with to offer Him. And so sometimes, because we're human, right, on a human level, if there's a person, let's say you have a friend at work or whatever, and that person wants all the glory of anything positive that happens in the work environment. What would we call that guy? We'd call him obnoxious. We'd call him conceited. We'd call him prideful. We'd call him all kinds of things except my best friend, right? We don't like that guy. We don't want to be around him. And so sometimes we have a little bit of a hard time wrapping our head around this, that God wants our glory. 
or wants glory from us. God wants to be magnified because God is God. He totally deserves it. The challenge we have with this guy at work is he totally doesn't deserve all the glory because he's human, just like me. But God deserves all of our glory, all of our praise, all of our honor. And sometimes we, we miss the opportunity and the privilege to give him all the praise and honor and glory in our lives because we're just not necessarily wired like that, but we need to be deliberate to do so. We need to be deliberate to do so. He says, I will not give my glory to another. Let me tell you another thing. This applies to our lives. This applies, I've seen this in people in ministry over the years and stuff. It's just very, we have to be very careful, right? And again, I will not give my glory to another, right? What's this, you know, what's this move, right? God blessed me. Wow, that's an awesome layup, wasn't it? Be very careful. Be very careful. God blesses you. We say, thank you, God, for blessing me. We don't say, that was an awesome, that was an awesome layup. We say, thank you, God, for blessing me. He says, I will not give my glory to another. He's very, he's a very jealous God. That doesn't mean we need to say, wow, why does he have to be like that? He's God. We're not. Period. I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and, listen, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand was laid, has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And so, of course, he deserves the glory. He stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. The guy that works with me didn't do that right? Nobody else did that. God laid the foundation of the earth and stretched out the heavens. Does he deserve to be glorified? Yes, Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And it's our duty to do so, our privilege to do so. All of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. And so... (coughs) So God now turns his attention to the captives in Babylon, right? And he says, uh, you know, I'm the God who has declared these things. And uh, by the way, I'm going to deal with the Babylonians. I'm going to take care of them and I'm going to deliver my people and his way will prosper, meaning the child of Israel that has surrendered to me, even if he's in Babylon. And that applies to us. In our lives today, we're not in Babylon. We're not serving pagan idols, right? But we do often find ourselves in challenge. Sometimes we find ourselves in consequences of our sin. Sometimes we find ourselves in in challenging situations and circumstances. But we know that God, the God who laid the foundation of the earth, the God whose right hand has stretched out the heavens, that that God can call us. And that guy, that God can make our way prosper as we come near to him, he says. And he says, I've not spoken in secret from the beginning. 
I've not spoken in secret. And we all know God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all know that all the way back to the beginning. God has declared that. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Again, that title of God. God redeems us. What does Redeemer mean? It means He bought us back from our slavery to sin. We were slaves to sin. God brought us back with the price of Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Please catch this. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. So let's take Solomon, for example. You know, depending on, you know, which author you, you, you know, how, how you want to place it. Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote, most people would say, at the end of his life. And at the very end of that book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon reflects and he says, you know, all that time I wasted, I did learn my lesson. Right? Now, God would say, you know what? There's two ways for us to learn the lessons of Solomon, right? Number one, try it yourself. Live for yourself. Live for pleasure. Live for wealth. Live for your knowledge. Live for your wisdom. Live for yourself. Live for yourself. Live for yourself. Serve yourself and see how that works out. That's one way to learn. And as children of God, he'll he'll teach us that. The other way to learn is to receive his instruction, read his word, and say, you know, I think I'll just sidestep that little furnace, right? And I learned the same lesson, right? What's he say here? Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. So the nation of Judah, he's, you know, he said, you know, if you guys would have just listened to my word, if you'd received my word, which he gave them over and over and over again, they all knew his word. If you just received what I said, I would have blessed you. Would have been so peaceful. Everything would have been awesome. The offspring of your body, like the grains of sand, all of that stuff, right? It would have been such blessing, prosperity. And, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. What did Jesus say when he came in on Palm Sunday? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How, how I wished that you would hear me. How I just long like a, like a, it's a, it's just such a vivid picture. Like a, like a hen gathers chicks under her wings. How I want to just take care of you, but you wouldn't receive it. See, he doesn't force his way on us. He gives us his word. He extends the invitation to fellowship. He makes everything. Second Peter chapter one tells us he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He laid it out for us. He died on a cross so we could have full access to all the blessings of God. And he wants to nurture us. He wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to grow us and shape us and mold us. And every time we kick and scream and say, no, I want to do my own thing. He says, all right, you can learn that way if you like. There's two ways to learn. 
he would suggest to learn the easy way. Go forth from Babylon, he says. Flee from the Chaldeans. So now he's talking to the captives in Babylon because here's another thing that's going to happen. Historians tell us that, you know, as they were uh, in Babylon for 70 years, right? You may recall Jeremiah said when they, when they went off to Babylon, Jeremiah said, hey, why don't you guys build houses and hang out there because you're going to be there for a while, right? Well, fast forward 70 years, Cyrus is going to come on the scene and say, hey, everybody go back to Israel that wants to go back. And would you know that many of them said, you know, we're kind of comfy here in Babylon. Really? Kind of comfy here in Babylon? But he says, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, and they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. So references back to the, when they were in the desert and God gave them water, God gave them everything they need. So leave Babylon now, he would say, go back and watch me provide for you. Don't live in your complacency. And I believe that's what he would tell us today. And then chapter 49, he just, he, he moves into um, sort of a, oh, I missed the last verse, I'm sorry, of chapter 22, or chapter, verse 22, chapter 48. Look at this. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Catch that. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Why is that? Is that because God hates us and he likes to punish us? No, it's because God is always trying to push us to a point of repentance. So there's no peace for the wicked. Chapter 49 is a, uh, more of a dialogue about the, the Messiah uh, specifically. He says, listen, O coastlands, to me. And uh, most of your Bibles, uh, the me there is capitalized, uh, meaning the translators want us to know that that's a reference to Jesus. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. So now we have a first-person prophecy from the Messiah, from Jesus himself. And notice here now, his impact is going to be to the coastlands. Oh, coastlands. It's sort of a, a geographical reference, if you will, to all the world. So we're not talking just about the Jewish people now. We're talking about everybody, including us. Listen, oh, coastlands to me. He says, the Lord has called me from the womb. Catch that? The Lord has called me from the womb. Tells us, number one, that Jesus was born from a woman. Was Jesus born from a woman? From the womb of a woman? Yes, he was. And also it affirms that God's purposes for human beings began when? Conception. At the point of conception, and there's several references, God says, I uh, believe God told Jeremiah this before you were born. You know, I've got a purpose set aside for you, right? From the point of conception, God has a purpose for each and every one of us. God, God considers us individual human beings, not a blob of tissue, not an accident, but individual human beings for whom Jesus Christ felt enough value that he would die on the cross. That's the, that's the scenario for everyone, right? And so he says, uh, the Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. And he has made, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Again, God gets the glory, right? 
Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And so, um, so Jesus is sort of the ultimate, if you will, the ultimate instrument of God's purposes. And God will use Jesus to bring Jacob back to him, he says. He says, references here, bring Jacob back. And then, yet from an earthly perspective, uh, he says, um, then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. And yet, that's just from the earthly perspective, because Jesus was rejected. He was crucified. But ultimately, he was used for God's purposes to bring Jacob back so that Israel is gathered to him. And again, his, his salvation reaches to the coastlands, to, the, uh, to all peoples, including us. Indeed, he says, verse 6, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so there you have it. Uh, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ is available to the Gentiles, a light to the Gentiles, and that his salvation should go to the ends of the earth. And that includes us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, he could have just come and saved the Jews, right? Would he have, would he have been fully justified to do that? Sure. To offer salvation just to the Jewish people? Sure. Sure he could have. But he offers uh, salvation as a light to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom, whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes also shall worship, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. And so it's a good summary statement, really, of Jesus' ministry. He was despised by men. But God accomplishes purposes through Jesus. Because what? Because of the Lord who is faithful. Because of the Lord who is faithful. Can I tell you in our lives today, you know, we sometimes fall out of fellowship with the Lord for whatever reason. Or we, f we feel like God's far away. Anybody ever said that? Don't raise your hand. I feel like God's far away. Right? Well, Sometimes our lives and our decisions and the things that we do can make us feel far away from God. That's a reality, right? And then sometimes there's a reality that we can't trust our feelings, and if I feel like God's far away, uh, that's just your feelings, and your feelings are not your reality. But we know this, the Lord, because of the Lord who is faithful. What's faithful mean? Faithful means I'm hanging in there with you, to the end. I'm hanging in there with you to the end. God wants fellowship with his children, and he will do what it takes to accomplish his purposes because he's faithful. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I've heard you, and in the day of salvation, I've helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Again, this is the work of Jesus in our lives.
They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will, make my, I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim, which was, Sinim was an area uh, of Egypt. But so in the near fulfillment, God is speaking, I'm going to bring these captives back from Babylon to the nation of Israel. But in the, full, in the far fulfillment, God is gathering all of his children together. God has not only a purpose for our lives individually, God has a purpose and a plan for all of human history, right? And however and whenever it, plan, it pans out, it's going to be according to God's purpose and according to God's time, and we don't have to worry about it. We just need to be faithful. We need to enjoy fellowship with Him along the way. And He says, you know, uh, they'll neither hunger, hunger nor thirst, even by springs of water, He'll guide them. God's going to carry us through those things. Can I tell you this? God never promises us, it was referenced earlier, God never promises us that we'll be free from challenge in this life. Even if we serve Him wholeheartedly and faithfully and we're surrendered to Him and we do everything right, we're not going to be exempt from challenge, but we're going to have the joy of knowing that He carries us through those challenge, right? John chapter 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world because he wants to have fellowship with us. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. So as we realize these things, the only response we can have is to sing and rejoice because God has comforted his people. He has mercy on, on us. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So you got to love this. So, you know, Zion, a reference to the Jewish people said, hey, God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. Again, sometimes we feel that way. And God would say, you know, does a mother, like, forget her newborn child? Really? No. I mean, that's just as natural as even the animal world, right? Do you mess with a bear that's got newborn cubs? Do you play with the cubs of a bear? We were talking, we were talking this week, uh, you know, about traveling out west and, and uh, you know, kinds of things that you need to watch out for. Well, if you see a mother, you see a mother cub or mother bear with a couple cubs, right? Don't mess with the cubs, right? It's, it's nature, right? See a human mother with a newborn baby? Don't mess with that baby. No, you can ask her, like, can I say your baby's beautiful? And she'll probably say, yeah, you can do that. Can I say your baby's awesome? Yeah, you can probably do that. Can I pet your baby on the head like this? You can probably do that, Right? But does a mother forget her nursing child? No. Does God forget his children? No. Does God forsake his children? No. He says, your sons shall make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste. They shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. 
For your waste and desolate cities and the land of your de destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in their hearts, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I can, may dwell. So what he's saying is, when you come back from Babylon and you dwell in the land there, God's going to bless you so much. You're going to, you know, there's, there's going to be, uh, you're going to multiply and, and all of this. Uh, you're going to say the place is too small. Then you'll say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was left alone. But these, where were they? And so, um, you know, again, uh, God's going to bring them back. And then finally, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. So now again, he's talking to the nations. He's talking to all of us. And this is fulfilled ultimately when he comes back from earth after uh, the great tribulation and sets up a millennial kingdom that, where he'll reign with us for a thousand years over uh, a, some, uh, sort of a utopian Garden of Eden uh, setting on earth. And this is how he describes it. I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens, their queens, your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they will not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall, they, shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed, on those, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with, their sweet, with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So know this, when Jesus comes back after the Great Tribulation, he sets up his millennial kingdom. He will establish justice, right? And when you establish justice... When you're God and you come to earth and you establish justice in a world that's been unjust, there's going to be some, there's going to be some fallout, right? And he says that. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine, right? But he says, all flesh shall know. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so all flesh is going to know that God is God. And Philippians tells us, right, that at the name of Jesus, one day, the day will come that every single knee that's ever been born will bow, and every single tongue that's ever been formed on a human body will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That'll be a great day, won't it? That'll be a great day. We can look forward to that. Will that happen... Uh, will that happen in our lifetime? Maybe. I had a guy this week. So let me just, just for one second as we wrap up. A lot of things are happening in the world today, right? And it's triggering a lot of speculation. Can I just tell us, just be careful. Just be faithful. Are we closer to the coming of Christ than we were yesterday? Yeah. yeah. Does that mean we know when it is? No. 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 What's our job? Be faithful. I had a guy this week tell me, he says, uh, he, if, if I walk in, the, walk in the room, 
How you doing? What's up? Not much. Crazy world, isn't it? Yeah, pretty crazy world. He said, who do you think the Antichrist is? <laughs> I'm like, I'm not falling for that one, right? And he was, I mean, he was being lighthearted about it, so it was no big deal. But just be careful, right? Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Because you know what? If you, do, if, you, if you figure out who the Antichrist is, right? And if you know what God's doing, that's like saying, I'm playing awesome offense, right? That's what that is, right? Just be faithful. Just be faithful. God, have your way with me. God, thank you for the privilege that I get to have fellowship with you, right? So God, we are so thankful that we can have fellowship with you. We thank, we're thankful that you make it all possible. We're thankful that you gave us another day today. And Lord, if it's your will, give us another day tomorrow. And if it's your will to come back tomorrow, that's awesome. And if it's your will to take us to be with you tomorrow, that's awesome. And Lord, thank you that as we serve you, as we're your children, it doesn't matter what circumstances come our way, but we know that you are faithful. We know that you are good. And that we know that you take good, good care of us because you're a good, good father. And Lord, we, we do ask that you would help us to learn those life, those life lessons, maybe the easy way, if it be your will, that we wouldn't have to go through times of, of being obstinate and being disciplined and then learning the hard way and all of those sorts of things. Lord, we, know, we all know what that's like. But Lord, we ask that you would... Just give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say. Give us hearts that would respond to your word. Give us hearts that would surrender to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would be very discerning, and that we would follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.